Good to see everybody. Find your uh, Bibles and turn to Colossians 2-7, if you would, please. How many are familiar with Nav Press? Anybody? Pretty familiar with it? Uh, I'm basing this study, although, as I've mentioned, I do veer off of it a good bit because so much of their study is designed for a small group if you were in a little classroom sitting around a table with a couple of uh, students there and so I've had to adapt quite a bit but uh, excellent little three-part series and the uh, first book is called Growing Strong in God's Family and, and as I mentioned to you this morning uh, this is going to be just very basic discipleship lessons. Uh, if you've been in church, nothing you haven't heard, but uh, hopefully it'll be just a good opportunity to sort of review some of the basics that we need to stand on. So uh, let's find Colossians 2.7 and uh, notice here that uh, what Paul says, well let's back up to verse 6, he says, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want to ask you this week, uh, to memorize that verse, okay? Uh, we're going to talk in this series some about scripture memory in a later lesson and hiding God's word in our hearts, but uh, let that be the first verse in this series that you memorize. Uh, tonight we're talking about just the very basics of salvation and the assurance of salvation. Now folks, Let's, as we think about what God wants out of us, we know that God just doesn't want a bunch of baby Christians running around. What does He want? He wants mature believers, doesn't He? Now, what are some of the things that you would say would, uh, would be evidence of mature believers? Talk to me tonight. Okay, regular prayer and devotional time, a commitment to that. Okay, uh, feeding ourselves spiritually. After all, we feed ourselves physically every day, don't we? What else would be another evidence of maturity in believers? Meeting together for worship. Commitment to that, Hebrews 10. Okay. Excuse me? Just a commitment to uh, God's creation, to, to, that God is uh, Lord and creator of all, okay? Okay? A changed life, amen. Anything else? The fruits of the Spirit in your life, absolutely. And we'll talk uh, more in depth about that at a later point too, good. So, excuse me? Continue to grow, yes, yes. Evangelism, concern for lost souls, and being a witness. Knowledge of the scriptures. Okay, good. 
Anything else? One more, maybe. Excuse me? Obedience. Yes, obedience. Well, as we think tonight about steps to maturity, first of all, I want you to notice with me uh, salvation. And as we uh, turn to think about salvation, flip back to John chapter 3. And you'll recognize this as Jesus' conversation with uh, Nicodemus. In John 3, uh, we're told, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things or these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what's some things we notice in that passage about salvation? You can't see it? Okay. Can't, can't see the event itself. Hopefully you see the evidence of it in a believer's life. What else do you notice about uh, anything from this passage? Okay. Verily, verily, I say unto you, or I tell you the truth. Uh, point of emphasis, in other words. Uh, what he's talking about is very important. A work of the Spirit. Conversion is a work of the Spirit on the human heart. Yes. Somebody else. Uh, necessary for entrance into heaven. Folks, you'll notice what salvation is and what it is not. Uh, you know, religious involvement, of course, is important. But salvation is not uh, just simply religious involvement in and of itself. Christianity is a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Over in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 we're told there that God put forward Christ uh, as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation uh, refers to something that absorbs or receives the wrath of God. Something that takes our place. And that's what Christ did at the cross. He took our place. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
Christianity, uh, salvation, is a new birth. Now, why do you think Jesus used that expression to describe salvation? A complete change. Also, what do you think of at a birth? A, a starting point, you think of new life. A new beginning. The Christian life has a beginning. I say that because some people, and you've probably been told this before at some time in the past, some people will tell you, well, you know, I have always been a Christian. You ever heard anybody tell you that? I've always been a Christian. That is an unscriptural statement. It's unscriptural. Life, Christian life, salvation has a beginning. It has a beginning point. Now, they might be trying to communicate as far back as they can remember. They can't remember a time in their life that, that they weren't saved, that they gave their heart and life to Jesus at a young age. But the fact of the matter is we do not come into this world as Christians, uh, we only come in with the physical birth. And there's also a spiritual birth. And, and that's why the Bible says of Christians that the first death, the physical death, won't hurt you. You see, if you've been born once physically, you're going to die twice Physically and spiritually. If you've been born twice, physically and spiritually, you're only going to die once, physically. But you're going to live spiritually, everlasting, eternally. But the Christian life has a beginning. Has there been that time or point in your life that you have acknowledged your sinful condition... And that you are an object of the just wrath of a holy God. You deserve sin and death and hell. And you acknowledge that you could do nothing whatsoever to save yourself. No amount of good deeds, no amount of good works or keeping of the law could do the trick. Paul says in Romans 3, no man will be justified by the keeping of the law. He goes on to say, if you could be justified by the keeping of the law, what would God have done? God would have simply sent a law, right? Have you ever realized, though, that you can do nothing to save yourself? You're spiritually bankrupt. And you acknowledge Christ as your Savior. And commit your heart and life to Him. You surrender to Him. Yield to Him. If that's never happened, you can be a church member or Sunday school member and be here every time the doors are open. And you die lost in that condition. Think about it. Nicodemus was one of the leading rulers in Jerusalem. One of the leaders. And Jesus said to that gentleman, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. 
We cannot go to heaven the way we are without an encounter with Christ. Whereby we are born again, we're spiritually born, we're changed. That's necessary. That's what the Christian life is all about. Now, after we come to Christ, what's next? What's next as an expression of our new faith? Baptism. Believer's baptism. Now, we have people walk an aisle today. Had a young man in the late service this morning walk the aisle. Nothing wrong with that. But in the early church, someone's baptism was their profession of faith before the assembled body of believers. And they would be asked, What is your confession? Jesus is Lord. Then upon your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But baptism was in the early church someone's profession of faith. And baptism is the first act of obedience. We know that Jesus set the example that we're to follow in. Uh, He allowed John to baptize him. The Ethiopian eunuch, after Philip had witnessed to him and won him to the Lord, the Ethiopian eunuch understood right away that the next step he needed to take was baptism. He said, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, nothing. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and and came to die for your sins. And he said, I believe. And so the Bible says they both got out of the chariot and went down into the water. And he was baptized. It's odd today how some people occasionally want to resist being baptized. But we need to realize baptism is a new believer's first step of obedience. It doesn't save. It does not save, but it is a profession. And it's very important to Jesus because in the Great Commission, what did Jesus tell us to do? Go into all the world, make disciples, and what do you say about that? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus included baptism in the Great Commission. It tells us that Jesus Christ must consider it very, very important. Now, baptism communicates three things primarily. Um... Any, any guesses, any, any thoughts on that tonight as to what baptism, Jeremy? Yes, a, a believer's death to the old life and as they're coming up out of the water, it's the resurrection to, to new life in Christ. And so think of that water as like a water grave. What else? Uh huh. Hmm. You're you're saying where she is? There's just not 
not the not a church. You know, I've heard of people being baptized in a bathtub or an animal trough. And uh, certainly God understands our circumstances, but there ought to be some type of attempt to make a profession of faith through believer's baptism. And again, people today uh, get, get very creative in, in ways to do that. Lakes, stream, in the early days of pits... Uh, down here at the bridge at 29, as you go down to 29, take a left and go up and you cross that little bridge back in the woods where the creek kind of bends around. Lawrence Blackwell showed me where y'all used to dam up the creek and go down there and have a baptismal service down there. So lakes, streams, rivers, uh, popular ways. And, and a chair. Sure. Right. Right. And, and I think God understands some of those hardships. But, you know, given the opportunity, uh, we ought to want to be baptized as an expression of our faith. So it communicates the death to the old way and a new life now, a new beginning. What else? Hmm? Cleansing of sin. Uh, it's now baptism itself, the water doesn't wash away our sin. You know, when I dunk somebody in the water and they go under the water, it's not like their sins float across the top of the water and bloop, down the drain, they're gone. You know, it's, it's symbolic of a washing away of sin. <laughs> a third thing it communicates is a union to the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what you're saying uh, by proclaiming that union to the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is your only hope of salvation and, and it communicates the gospel in that way just as the Lord's Supper does the elements represent his body and blood pierced in the blood shed for us and it's a proclamation there's a gospel proclamation in the ordinances and and so baptism communicates a union to the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is your only hope of forgiveness and of peace with God it's your own death, burial, and resurrection symbolizing a new way of life and thirdly, the washing away of sin. So baptism communicates all those things. And so understanding salvation and making your commitment to the Lord public is the first step. And Jesus wants us to make our faith public. He said, those who profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father who is in heaven. Now, a second thing I want to mention to you tonight is the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. Now, this is such a critical issue. And I want you to understand why. In Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, folks, 
if, if a believer wrestles with issues of assurance, chances are that believer is going to be at a standstill in their Christian effectiveness until that issue is settled. It's not uncommon to wrestle with issues of doubt. It's important to settle it until you settle it. There's always a lack of peace, a lack of joy, and probably a lack of effectiveness until that issue is settled. Now, I believe that doubt, illegitimate doubt, is a tool of the enemy. I also believe, though, there's legitimate doubt. You sit in church, and let's say you're lost, and the Holy Spirit's convicting you that you've never been saved. You sit there and begin to doubt the legitimacy of your salvation. That's good. That's like a wake-up call. But there's illegitimate doubt. You say, now, how in the world can I overcome this? Well, 1 John is a book in the Bible with, it's a little book with a big message. It's a little book with big promises and big assurances. 1 John presents us with three tests that we can apply to ourselves. The belief test, the obedience test, and the love test. The belief test. What does God's word say about salvation? Well, what does it say? John 3, 16 to 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son, his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in Acts 4.12 it says, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 John 5.1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Romans 10.9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, 8 through 9 rather says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And then Romans 3, beginning in verse 20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
So certainly one thing you want to deal with if you're wrestling with doubts, have I obeyed God's roadmap, the scripture, and what it says about salvation? What's the message of scripture? That salvation is only through Jesus. I mentioned to you some years ago how W.A. Criswell, supposedly early on in his ministry there at First Baptist of Dallas, wrestled with salvation and, and, and got so fed up with it, he left his office one day, took his Bible, said, I'm going out into the woods and God, me and you are going to settle this issue and I'm not coming back until we do. He read everything in the Bible that has to do with being saved. He said, God, I have obeyed the word of God. I have done all that. And it said he came back to the ministry of First Baptist, a new man. The belief test. Have I obeyed the word of God? Have I done what the scripture says somebody must do to be saved? You see, if you're trusting in works or the law or being good or church membership in and of itself or baptism in and of itself, then that's your answer right there. If you've never surrendered to Christ, then you've not done what the Bible says you must do in order to be saved. But if you have, that's one test you can use to put the issue to rest. Again, it doesn't say walk an aisle. We have people come forward here in order to make public their declaration of faith in Christ. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. I mention that because I've asked people before, when did you get saved? Oh, I, I walked the aisle when I was 12. Oh, well, when did you get saved? Well, I was baptized when I walked the aisle. Well, that, that's good. I'm, gl I'm glad you did. But tell me about your salvation. Oh, some kids went forward at vacation Bible school and everybody wanted to be baptized. So I got baptized with them. That's kind of a warning flag that goes off, right? Warning flag. Have you trusted Christ? Has your soul been regenerated? Have you obeyed what God's word says you must obey in order to be saved? Bible neither says joining a church will save you. Whether you're Catholic or Protestant won't save you. I think of Art Linkletter who died at 97. You know, he had that show that kids say the darndest things. He asked one little boy one time, what's your faith? And the little boy said, I, well, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Linkletter said, well, what's your religion? The boy still didn't know. Finally, he said, well... Where do you go to church? And the little boy said, well, I'm not really sure. We're either Catholics or prostitutes. <laughs> it's not about being Catholic or Protestant. Again, it's about Jesus. And you know, I don't know why so many miss this. Uh, I think of what the uh, Philippian jailer said. Uh, Acts 16, 30 to 31 says, And they brought them out and said, Sirs, uh, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why do you think so many Christians doubt their salvation? 
What's, what's one thing that we can rely upon that can be really dangerous? Feelings. Who said that? Feelings. We can rely on feelings. That's right, John. We live in such a thrill-a-minute society, don't we? we? We start thinking, man, if I don't feel it, it must not be real. And everything in, a, in society today is that thrill-a-minute, isn't it? We want to be entertained. We want to go to the movie theater and be entertained by the movie or to a sports arena and be entertained. And, and, and we transfer that over into our salvation and we start thinking, I, 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 I've got to feel it all the time. And that plays with our mind. And then somebody ends up going through a dry period in their spiritual life. Maybe they're not in the Word, not in prayer, and just going through a time of walking in disobedience, and they don't feel it anymore like they once did when they first got saved. And immediately they start thinking, I must not be saved. And they end up in my office and they say, Pastor, I must not have it anymore. You must not have what anymore? I must not be saved. Well, if you had it, you still got it. You didn't lose it. You know, quite frankly, we'd have to admit, some days you may not feel like loving your spouse or your teenager, but they're still your spouse or your teenager, right? Some days you may feel like killing that teenager, but they're still your teenager, right? Feelings have nothing to do with it. 1 John 3, 19 through 20 indicates that our heart may condemn us from time to time. Verse 19, John says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can trust it? You see, we mix the order up. God says, fact, Jesus died for you. Faith, I believe that. Feelings last. Some days I may feel it, some days I may not. But we get that all turned around and we put feelings first. And it's like the caboose trying to drive the train, right? We get it all mixed up. Our salvation is based on the promise of God. Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. If you've obeyed God, had an encounter with Christ, He changed your life and forgave you you can have peace with God Romans 5 1 says therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and Romans 8 1 goes on to tell us there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ belief test well John also talks about an obedience test Somebody mentioned it a while ago, I forget who, but that the fact that biblical salvation gives evidence of itself. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, granted, sometimes new life in Christ is less evident than at other times. I mean, after all, we still have to battle with the flesh. But nonetheless, the course of your life, the overall general course of your life, ought to give evidence that you're saved, if you're saved. Maybe you just made an intellectual commitment and that was all. What's an evidence of biblical salvation? Obedience. Look at what John says in 1 John 1, 5-7. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and the tenses in 1 John are very important. It, walking as a way of life. If we say that we know him and we walk continually in the darkness, what's the verdict? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You go over to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. And again, that's as a regular practice. Does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what's John speaking of here? John's speaking of a changed life a changed life now let's think about before and after conversion a moment before we walked in darkness the things of God were no joy for us no delight for us we didn't pray we didn't read the Bible when we read the Bible maybe we had no idea what it was saying like reading somebody else's mail and, and going to church and reading the Bible might have seemed like an old-fashioned dose of castor oil. We were dictated, the Bible says, by our desires and pleasures. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what it meant to walk in darkness. Doesn't necessarily mean that you lived in the pig pen every day. It just means that you were tuned to the world's frequency. You weren't on God's frequency. 
And John points out, if this is the way you live your life, you can say all day long that you're a Christian, but you're a liar. That'd be nice if John really told us what he thought, right? Now, I want you to understand how John is setting this whole thing up. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, how did he describe God? God is what? Light. That says something about his character. Now, salvation is a what kind of a birth? Starts with the S. A spiritual birth. Who moves in? Holy Spirit. God is what? God's light. And so if I claim to have had an experience with the sovereign God of the universe and He's moved into my heart and changed my life and He's light and yet I'm still walking in darkness as a pattern. Folks, there is a problem. There's a problem. For a a believer, if you do stumble into darkness, what happens? Boy, the Holy Spirit gets after you, doesn't he? Can anybody testify maybe after you were saved? Boy, God took you to the woodshed over your language, didn't he? Maybe that didn't get cleaned up right away, but, but you were convicted about it and disciplined by it, and God cleaned that up. God's rooting out the darkness, getting rid of that. And that's evidence of spiritual birth. It's more radical for some than others. I think the longer you've been walking in darkness and the longer you've been walking in sin, probably the more dramatic your conversion is. And we don't want to compare ourselves dramatics. To, that dramatics is not what legitimizes our salvation. Mel Trotter was an old drunk. The community had to take up a collection to buy a dress to bury his little daughter in. He broke into the funeral home, stole the dress off of his daughter so he could go and sell it and buy some more liquor. That's about as lost as you can get. And then God gloriously saved him. He became a flaming evangelist. Not everybody's that dramatic. Sometimes folks struggle to give up some of those old habits. But the evidence is, the evidence comes in in the fact that they want to give them up. Sin doesn't have that same attraction to us that it once did. Has there been any kind of change in your life? Is there a love for the things of God? A love for the things of God. A desire for the things of God. That's evidence of conversion. Another way to look at this, you can kind of turn that upside down on its head and think about your relationship to sin. In in 1 John 3, uh, 6 through 10, John says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He's not talking about sinless perfection because he's already told us back in chapter 1 that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Again, John is talking about patterns. What's your relationship to sin? Can you leap into sin and love it? A sinner, a lost sinner, leaps into sin and loves it. A child of God stumbles into sin and loathes it. A new relationship to sin. Evidence of change in your life. A desire to now obey God. And be about the things of God. If that explains you, again, that's another wonderful test. Wonderful test of assurance and evidence of salvation. And then a third one that John gives is the love test. In 1 John 3, 14, he says there, We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What did Jesus say in John 13 would be the hallmark of Christians? That we would love one another. He said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for the brethren is a hallmark of Christianity. Now, one of the ways that we express our Christian love is seen in the fact that we want to be around our Christian brothers and sisters. We want to hang out with them. You know, we may still want to rub shoulders with that crowd maybe you hung out with at the bar, but you, want to, you just want to touch base with them to kind of be a shining light to them and win them to the Lord. You, you don't take any joy in hanging out with them anymore. That they're not, you're kind of crowd anymore. You love Christians. You want to go to church. Well, I tell you what, I, I've got some problems with people who say they are saved and yet they could take or leave the church. You almost have to beg them to go to church. A spouse or somebody's got to twist their arm to, to get them to church. Can somebody be saved not go to church? Sure, theoretically that's possible. Again, church doesn't save us. But I think what the Bible is telling us, when we get saved and God changes our life, boy, I tell you what, you're not going to be able to keep us away from, from worshiping God and fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's just something we're going to want to do. Third thing I want you to notice the assurance of forgiven sin. The assurance of forgiven sin. One thing that people struggle with sometimes is the forgiveness of sins. They, they just find it hard to believe that God can forgive them. I want you to turn with me back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8.
They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here was a lady who was an adulteress. And what did Jesus do? He forgave her. Folks, the Bible doesn't categorize sins that cannot be forgiven. Now, the Bible does categorize sins to some degree. Not all sin, evidently, is is viewed in the identical light, apparently. And and I want to explain what I mean by that. Uh, People will say all sin is the same. I'd love to have a dollar for every time I've heard that. Uh, all you've got to do to see the falseness of that statement is turn back to the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, for instance, you would see God saying, if somebody in the community does this, then here's the offering they're supposed to bring, and here's what they're supposed to do. Now, if they've done this on the other hand, this is what they're supposed to do, and then... This is the offering they're supposed to bring. And then it'll say, now if somebody commits this sin over here, put him to death. Then you come to the New Testament, you find in 1 Corinthians 5 that there was a sin that a brother committed for which he should have been put out of the church. Now Paul said to the Corinthians that they were They were liars and slanderers and gossips and backbiters and personality chasers. And and they had been guilty of uh, adulterous things in their lives. And he says, some of you were all of that. You were washed and so forth. But there was this one particular sin of this brother in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, you should have put that brother out. Right? Right? Should have dealt with that sin. He didn't say that about every sin, but he said that what that guy was doing, the relations with his stepmother. You should have put him, you should have been ashamed that that was in the church and you should have dealt with him and, and, and put him out and you didn't. Now, God didn't say that about every sin, but he said it about that one. So again, apparently not all sin is the same, but what's important to see is that all sin can be forgiven. 
All sin is not the same, but all sin can be forgiven. The only sin that the Bible says can't be forgiven is what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But all other sin was forgivable. So what did Jesus tell this woman? Go and sin no more. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. 1 John 1 9. What's 1 John 1 9 tell us? Flip back to there again. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8 1. What's Romans 8 1 say? There is now, therefore, what kind of condemnation? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So just like we believe God's word for salvation, we can believe God's word for the forgiveness of sin. Amen? Now fourthly, we have the assurance of answered prayer. Look over at 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. John says there, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. We're plainly told here, folks, that this is an assurance that we can have. Now that doesn't mean that there's not conditions to prayer in the Bible. What did David say about sin? He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, finish that. The Lord will not hear me. Look at Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Look at what he says there in Isaiah 59, uh, 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so what's the Bible telling us? Disobedience and sin that is not dealt with in our lives can keep our prayers from being effective. Likewise, James 4 talks about some things that can keep our prayer life from being effective. Over in James 4. James 4, 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But he, he, going back to verse 3 again, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so the Bible is saying there are things in our lives that can hinder the effectiveness of our prayer life. Wrong passions... Wrong priorities, wrong goals, and sin, disobedience. But assuming that I'm clean before God and I'm not asking for things that I can just simply use selfishly, I can have the assurance of answered prayer. Had a friend in college, he could not understand why God wouldn't give him that candy apple red Corvette. Man, I'd love to have a candy apple red Corvette, wouldn't you? I'd probably get in trouble with it. God knows it's better that I don't have that candy apple red Corvette. Is that, is that a prayer that's going to bring glory to God and advance the kingdom of God? No. Do I have any basis of assurance that I can make that part of my prayer petition? God, give me that Corvette. No. So there are things that can hinder our prayer life. Wrong priorities, wrong passions, selfish things that we just want to consume upon our own lust. Or sin that we've not dealt with in our lives. But again, assuming I'm clean before God and I'm asking for things that would be within the scope of His will and would advance His kingdom, I can have the assurance of answered prayer. And so if you sense that there is not answered prayer in your life, what do you need to do? Just need to go before God and sit quietly and spend some hours or days with the Lord and ask Him to reveal, is there some sin in your life that you hadn't dealt with or are you asking for all the wrong kinds of things that wouldn't glorify Him? You need to deal with that. If you sense you pray and pray and pray and never get any answers to your prayer, then you need to deal with those two things. I want, I want you to think about something tonight related to this. Jesus would not have modeled prayer. He wouldn't have taught on prayer. He wouldn't have commanded prayer if God didn't intend to answer our prayers. He wouldn't have modeled it, taught on it, commanded it. If he didn't intend for us to pray and expect answers from God, right? And so tonight we've looked at salvation, the assurance of salvation, the assurance of forgiveness, and the assurance of answered prayer. Topics that are about as basic as we can get. And so the application is really pretty simple, isn't it? If you sense that you have never been born again, then you need to spend some time with God asking God to regenerate your soul. 
You don't sense that God's ever moved into your life and changed your life where you became a new creation in Christ. And there's been no overall evidence in your life of heart change. You need to do business with God. You really do. If you've been saved and on the authority of God's word, you can be certain. Ask God for assurance. God knows you need that for effectiveness. And you can be assured that there is no sin that you cannot put before God. There's forgiveness. And so don't allow the enemy to keep you in some sort of prison, so to speak, thinking that you can't be forgiven. Yes, you can. Like I say, only one sin that the Bible talks about that can't be forgiven of. And no, you've not committed that. If you're worried about that, you've not committed that one. Okay? And then lastly, start praying with confidence. If you know you're clean before God and asking for the right things within God's will, you can pray with confidence. Pray with confidence to the point you can put that petition down in your spiritual journal and anticipate that you're going to be able to come back at some later date and write down an answer to it, right? Salvation, the assurance of salvation, the assurance of forgiveness. In the assurance and confidence of answered prayer. Basic, basic stuff. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is so practical. Your word applies to life. And it's meant to. It's not ivory tower just for the classroom or just for church. But we're to live it out in our daily lives, out in the world, at work, at school, in our families. We're to live in such a way that gives evidence that there's a change in us. We ought to be able to look at our life and see footprints in the sand, so to speak. Your thumbprints all over us. Thank you, Lord, that you delight to save us, to fellowship with us, to communicate with us, and to use us in the world for your glory. Help us to understand there's no greater joy than being in the center of your will and knowing you. Lord, there's people that we'll bump into this week that don't have that assurance or confidence and many that just flat out don't know you. They're lost. May we be a witness to them. In Jesus' name we pray.